Our current systems aimed at reducing conflict are not working. Restorative justice works. I have seen it and I believe in it. 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 What's up, everybody? The season finale of season two is finally here. And dang, is it a good one? We're joined today by two folks from the Center for Dispute Settlement. This organization's vision is to help create a nonviolent, conflict-resolving community whereby disputes are peacefully resolved at the earliest possible stage to avoid escalation and the potential of violence by creating the capacity and resource within individuals and the community to effectively resolve their disputes quickly, informally, and peacefully. And their team is quite incredible. Our guests for this episode are Linda Bell and Clayton Lyons. First up is Linda Bell. Linda. Linda is an educator and youth professional whose career spans more than three decades of guiding the work that supports adolescents through their developmental milestones and life transitions. Linda, who is currently semi-retired, as she likes to say, was fortunate to be able to bring her life experience as a mother of three and grandmother of five and career experiences in teaching, youth development, training, research, curriculum development, program development, and technical assistance into the conflict resolution and restorative practices arena. Her last position was actually as the Director of Training and Restorative Initiatives for the Center for Dispute Settlement in Rochester, New York. Linda says that as she now lends her expertise in efforts that help youth find their sense of purpose as a way to build and restore community in these turbulent times, she is rewarded by the ability to finally be able to do who she is. And then there's Clayton. Clayton lives and works in Rochester, New York as well. He assists with conflict resolution and community building in schools, organizations, and the overall community. When not working with the Center for Dispute Settlement and other organizing groups, you can actually find him outside with friends or even making pizza at Peels on Wheels Pizza, which is truly another form of conflict resolution. Clayton is passionate about restorative practices, social justice, and feeding the people. And as you'll hear about in this episode, Clayton's the one that we are quote-unquote sending up the river. You'll know what I mean when you get into it. Let's get into it. Enough of the narration. This episode is gold. It's twice as long. Brought to you for the end of season two. Thank you for joining us up to this point. Here we go. Welcome, Linda and Clayton, to the Inspiring Radical Empathy podcast. We are so excited to have you both on today and hear about your experiences and knowledge regarding restorative justice and the work you both do centered in community work and community advocacy. In the spirit of restorative justice, we like to start by asking our guests a check-in question as a way to get to know one another and build some sort of belonging and community in our little Zoom room here. Um, so thinking about our content for today, our question is, tell us about a time you felt a part of a community in a big way, in a meaningful way. And I will start because I am facilitating the question and then I'll pass it on. When thinking about this question, I know that the most important, I think, and biggest community, not necessarily in size, but in feeling is certainly summer camp for me. However, I was talking to Laura before this and I was like, oh, I feel like that might be a cop out. So I'm going to share another one with you too. I grew up 
dancing since I was three and my family did as well. I have three older sisters and recently I have gotten after graduating high school, I stopped and I did it through college, but not really in the same way. And then since being out of school for a few years, it hasn't been as big of a part of my life as it was when I was younger. And recently I've returned to my dance studio I grew up at and I'm teaching lessons to one person. He's nine years old and he's going to perform in a recital this year. It's going to be great. And the other day when I was there, my dance teacher was with the younger students and they were going to their very first competition and they were very excited. And she's talking to them about how no matter what people say to you or if people comment to you at competition from other dance dance studios, whether it be negative or anything, just be sure to always be kind and don't take it to heart. And I remember her having that conversation with us. And it was a good reminder that I'm still a part of that community, even if you know, I'm not younger in, in that lifestyle as much as I used to be. So I was grateful for that in that moment. Laura, I will pass to you and then you can pass it on. Um, my, my example, my story will be from, from camp, but more specifically than the large camp community, just the staff community that we get to create each summer. <clears throat> we have about between 50 and 60 people that come and work for us. That includes like the medical team and the people helping out in the kitchen and the folks on the maintenance team. And at the end of every night of staff orientation, since the very first summer, we sit in a big circle in the dining hall and we pass around a bucket of like, it's a little basket of glass beads. And you, you take a bead from the bucket and then um, are able to, it's because it's such a big circle, you just jump in when you have something you'd like to share. And the, the offer is share something that you are grateful for or an aha moment that you had during the day. So something that like clicked for you. We're in the middle of staff orientation. So a lot of people are like learning things about what their job is going to be like or mm-hmm. who they're going to like work with or, or things about themselves. And the first time every summer, the first time we leave the circle, I always think, is this going to work? Like it's a new group of people. Like, is it, is it really like, it's always it feels so good at the end of the 10 days of staff orientation and every single year, even though I know <laughs> I always second guess it, but then slowly, but surely after, you know, every night we, we sit around and we do something similar that the, the ritual of it and the way we build like relationships throughout the rest of the day, whatever it is, like the last, always like the last few grateful aha moment circles that we lead during staff orientation, give me this feeling of um, community in a big way. I, I can't think of any other space I've been in that's quite like it. It's just people really hearing, listening, willing to be like a little bit more vulnerable in a big space than they might in other ways. And that always feels really meaningful to me. Linda, I'll pass it to you. Thank you. Thanks, Laura. Uh, And again, thanks for having us on. I I love this question. I've actually felt part of, uh, very much part of a community in two different times in my life. And I'm going to talk about the the second time because it it relates to now. I, I, I really wanted to be a teacher as a career. My original career goal was to teach. And I was an English teacher for a while and high school, but um, my, my style was one of, it was restorative already and I didn't have the word for it. I didn't, I didn't have a desk, a teacher's desk. I refused to have one in my classroom. My kids were all over the place constantly. <laughs> and it would be just at that moment 
when I would have a student teaching the class that the head of the English department would walk in. And that happened one time to many. And they decided that I was not like teaching material. And, and, and I had to agree with them. I was not... <laughs> I was not teaching material for that kind of education. And some, somebody whispered in my ear something about, you, you should really try the youth development field. You should really, you know, there's this principle out there that really speaks to what I see you trying to do in the classroom. And I, and I got into it and I got into a big time and that became my community. Everywhere I moved, Everyone I met, everything I did became about this principle that that our job as adults is to support and give opportunities to young people and just get out of their way. And I freaking loved that. I loved it. And I ate it for breakfast, lunch and dinner. And I went everywhere preaching it. And I and I just became and and Clayton may have may have heard this story before. But my name is Linda Bell. It's two words. But everybody in that field pronounces my name as if it was one word. Linda Bell. (laughs) Okay, so moving forward, we're saying Linda Bell. Linda Bell. It was one name. And that became my community. And I say that to say that I I then went and started to do for more money um, research about youth development programs and what worked, what best practices look like. And I didn't feel as connected at all. And with this work that we're doing now in restorative justice and working with young people, especially young adults, I'm back home. So that, that, that's my connection to this and to, to that work in my community. So, yeah. Yeah, uh, definitely. So a time I felt community uh, or I was a part of a community, I, you know, what comes to mind readily this morning is when I was living in, working in Geneva, New York, uh, which I, I mentioned that I lived at, lived in for a while. Uh, I went to college in Geneva, and, but it wasn't when I w- was in this, you know, small little city. Um, as a student that I felt most connected, it was afterwards. Um, I worked mm-hmm. in the school system, providing conflict resolution services, also worked at a pizza shop. So between those two jobs, I really interacted with, like, most of the town, it felt like. And then even moreover, I did a lot of organizing work with a group of folks who really just taught me the way you do community rooted work. You know, everything from t-shirt making parties to creating, you know, a newsletter to inform fellow town residents about what's going on that we used to drop off to like every house we could. And so just the dedication and the passion and the really down to earth nature of everybody just was such an accepting space that allowed me to grow and, and kind of figure out what it means to, to do community-based stuff. What, what pizza shop in Geneva? <laughs> yeah, so it was actually uh, a food truck. So we had brick oven, wood-fired pizza oven in the back of an old 1985 uh, Verizon truck. Uh, called Whoa. Pizza <laughs> yeah, and so we would take it place to place. Uh, our, our kitchen was in downtown Geneva. Unfortunately, it's, it's since closed. A friend of mine was the owner and operator to prioritize an ice cream store now called Spotted Duck, which makes this incredible duck egg custard. I still do work for a pizza shop here in Rochester. That's kind of like my 
you know, my outlet away from the intense nature of my day job. Wait, now you have to tell us the one in Rochester, though. Sure, yeah, it's called Peels on Wheels, and it is. Oh, that's my favorite. Yeah, <laughs> definitely the best. So here in the good. City. Oh my gosh. Shameless, shameless vlog. Now we're getting into advertising. All right, sorry. Ray's looking at us like, come on, people, keep. Well, no, if Peels on Wheels gives us that advertising money, (laughs) then think about all the all the scholarship opportunities for stomping ground. All the youth we can get into the center for. Well, now transition to a commercial for. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, cut it. That's good. Um, No, thank you both for sharing. I think it's really cool to hear about how everyone's responses are really different. And I think that speaks to how everybody feels and experiences community differently. And so I'm excited to kind of draw back to that during our conversation today. Wondering if you can both orient us to how restorative justice has impacted your lives and how you got connected to the movement to you. Maybe that means where you started, where you are now. Maybe it means where you are now and where you're going. However, you want to take that but I think you both have so much to offer and experience and knowledge from this field. And it would be awesome to hear more on that. So um, Clayton, do you want to share first? And then we can hear from Linda. Yeah, definitely. Restorative work and restorative justice more broadly was first introduced to me, you know, as a process I could use to help students in my job in Geneva High School. I hadn't heard much of it. I I had previously worked in the political arena um, for a little bit and was pretty disillusioned with that. And I I really wasn't sure what it meant to do embedded community work in a way that was meaningful and that allowed recourse after harm and getting to experience it and and do restorative work in a school that had a pretty significant rate of violence. You know, it really allowed me to see the power of relationships and also the power of healing when folks are able to just address things on their own terms in a safe environment. And, you know, as kind of like a a microcosm, as a little individual moment, restorative work is just super useful. It it works. It it helps folks feel like full people. It is a process and an idea that can be put in play, I think, anywhere. It's really universal. And then extrapolating beyond that, you know, how I've come to understand it is really a movement and a movement that flips the idea of justice on its head, you know, where the arbiter of justice in America today is the courts and legislative bodies and, you know, punitive authoritarian forces like the police, uh, restorative justice is, it should be a democratizing force. You know, I, I would be remiss if I didn't also say, I think we're at a bit of a crossroads too you know, in this movement where restorative justice increasingly is being adopted into these systems without the necessary level of transformative change to let it flourish as its own thing. We're seeing co-optation happen more and more. We're seeing, you know, restorative processes, quote unquote, without fidelity to true non-hierarchy, without fidelity to self-determination. And you know, people are still labeling it restorative process and they're getting a lot of money for it. And so, you know, I'm worried about that. You know, I think in this moment, we have to really look closely at, you know, what it means to do restorative work and embrace the principles around the circle itself. You know, the idea that we have to build relationships, we have to meet basic needs, you know, restorative justice fits within a larger context of transformative justice, I think. And we have to make sure we know what that is.
Well, let's dig into that one. That 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 could be the whole episode right there, Clayton. I think that that's <clears throat> I think that that's really insightful and powerful. And I yeah, I can't I can't help but see how popular it it becomes quickly and how the danger of the buzzword aspect of it to be a band aid fix that doesn't actually hit any of those root causes that you talk about. And do you see? I've heard a lot of different perspectives on this and I'm kind of wrapping my head around my own understanding as well. You see restorative justice fitting into transformative justice. Yeah, that, that, that's how I've come to understand, you know, the interplay between these ideas, these processes. Uh, restorative justice, you know, it, it allows individuals and groups accountability and healing, especially after harm, prioritizes relationships and transformative justice is this broader and deeper push to change the basic conditions in which harm occurs, mm-hmm. right? So that would be, you know, ensuring our folks having basic needs met, as well as creating systems that can meet those needs sustainably outside of the institutions which are plagued by so many ills of oppression, white supremacy, racism, et cetera. You know, it, it's funny because I, I bring this to, you know, this theoretical level very quickly. Uh, but I'll say my, my understanding of restorative justice is deeply personal. You know, mm-hmm. I understand restorative justice with reference to the people I work with every single day, the folks mm-hmm. who have both hurt others and been hurt. And I've been able to form a lot of relationships and get to know these families, these youth, these individuals, and, you know, really find out what it means to them, too. And seeing how it really works, it sounds like it's had a huge impact on not only like your belief in the possibilities within it, but you've like seen the impact on real lives, which we want to hear more about too. And I try to sum up what I think you said between the difference between restorative and transformative justice and Ray, if this doesn't fit, you'll just cut it out. But I'm for my own understanding here, I'm thinking about you said restorative justice is really about the individuals in the space. So restoring the um, relationships between people, um, but not necessarily restoring the systems that created that harm. But like when we get to the systems level, then we are talking about the transformative justice. So we don't want to restore to the same level that caused whatever harm we are now in the space of restoring. We want to get to the part where we can transform that part. But but I like, like, I, I think some ways that it's been described to me ha- has almost been in con the the restorative and the transformative community are in conflict with each other because this is like burn it down you know like change the whole thing but you're saying it's still all a part of the same movement we're just talking about two different levels at two different um oriented towards two different goals one is really like the, between people um the, restoring those relationships healing that harm in that way but then taking it to the next level but that those things are working connectedly or collaboratively you can still have both it doesn't have to be like yeah we're throwing out the whole restorative space because we don't want to restore things to the place where it created any harm to begin with i'm reflecting and 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 liking that definition a lot i think it's just more inclusive
All right, narrator break. Narrator break. Well, here's the thing. I thought the great definition there and distinction between transformative justice and restorative justice was gold, and I was writing out this whole thing. And then Laura just came in with this great reflection. So here's the thing. A number one, if you want to get those Denver, <laughs> A number one, if you want to get those definitions down, go back and listen to transformative justice and restorative justice through Clayton's eyes and voice. So, so good. And then if you're looking for some reflection on that, listen to Laura. What I'm basically learning from this episode is we're all along for the ride. You don't need narration. Again, twice the fun here in this episode. Stick around. There's a lot more to come with Linda and Clayton. Inspiring Radical Empathy Podcast Season 2 Finale. Let's keep it going. No narrator today. (laughs) Whenever Clayton talks about his spin on restorative and transformative, he he knows I'll go straight to this, this, this piece. It's the, it's the river babies, right? Clayton, you know, I'm going there. <laughs> and so if you know the story, you know that, you know, you're in the village and the babies are floating downstream and the people in the village see the babies and they start running out to mm. what? Pull the babies out of the river. And the more babies they pull out of the river, the more babies come down the river until the point where the whole village is out trying to pull the babies out of the river. And somebody finally says, let's go upstream. And everybody says, where are you going? And he said, we're going to go see who's throwing them in. So it's that for me. It's, it's that work for me. It's, and that's how I put it every time Clayton talks about it. Some of us need to stay down here and pull out the ones who are already in the stream and make sure that they get rescued. And some of us need to go back upstream and stop whatever's throwing them into the river. So transformative versus restorative is where I go. How it's impacted my life is that I send Clayton upstream all the time. (laughs) I stay in the river. Um, I stay knee deep in the river. Clayton's always in the river with me, trust me. But when he talks about his advocacy work, he'll tell you how he will run out on me and go upstream and, and he will, you know, burn it down um, <laughs> sometimes. So this work now is not work anymore. I started out with the whole thing about youth development and, and working with young people and all of that. It is now who I am. Mm. It is not what I do anymore. It is who I am. It's how I think about things. It's the lens through which I view the world. It's when I run into people, whether they're young people or old people or blue people or purple people, it's like, what happened here? You know, what happened here and what needs to happen to make this right to to the point that I can't do the work any other way anymore. Um, I can't think too much about systems. I hate to say that, um, uh, you know, when we, when we know that our systems are so broken, I can't think that hard and I can't put that much effort of myself. And I'm so thankful for the generations of Claytons that, that will do that. I need to stay in the river and I need to really be here for all of those who've already been lost or, or they feel like they're lost. 
and to let them know that they can be restored. And so that's why I came back into this work this time. This is a population of young adults, 18 to 24, who if you sit with them in a circle for five minutes, you will, you will feel the despair and the hopelessness um, that they've had to endure. And it doesn't take us very long. Over the course of a couple of circle sessions and a couple of weeks, to let them know that, you know, you think you're at the finish line, but this is really where it all begins for you now. This is, this is where it begins for you. So that's the work and that's the life. And that that's kind of where I'm, I'm in it right now. Linda, as much as you're able to, or to whatever level of comfort you have here, we can you paint more of the picture? Who's in the room with you during these circles? What are some of the outcomes? What does it yeah. feel like? These are amazing rooms. Right now we're in the room with, there are young people, many of them who have been next to that best friend who was killed, right? Right next to them. There are young people whose parents have been taken from them. There are young people who have been in foster homes and um, have just been through all the things that most people read about, you know, and, and, and don't know anything about those experiences. But they're so hungry and, and eager just to feel connected and that they belong. And when we create that environment where one, yeah, you, you definitely get to speak, you get to talk, and we all get to listen. And we're going to be here with you as long as you want to talk. We're going to be here to listen. And they get to say whatever they need to say. And nobody rebuts it. And nobody uh, challenges it. Because that's how you truly feel about it. And you bring all of that with you. And we we always let them know. They, they apologize sometimes. You know, I know I'm being harsh. I know I'm being... I know I'm being negative. I know that I might not be saying this in, you know, the most eloquent way. And we always say, but the circle can hold it. Mm. Whatever you bring, the circle can hold it. So bring it here. And they come back again and again. We have done with the financial part of this, this, this piece of work for them. They got paid, what, two, three weeks ago? Clayton, that was it. And they won't stop coming. And they tell us all the time, they love it. It's magical for them. It's that place where they can come and be themselves and share and hear other people that are going through the same things they are and have opinions about how to come up out of that. And again, we, we get out of the way and we let them handle it. Clayton, you want to talk about that room? It's an amazing room to be in every week. Yeah, definitely. I, I can kind of give the, the context of the different circles and spaces we're holding. So uh, Linda's referencing a program that we are doing with a lot of community partners. It's been kind of an all hands on deck type of program that is a response to, to violence in the city of Rochester. So nominally, it's called the Workforce Development Program. Mm-hmm. Um, but from jump, we knew that's not what we're trying to do. <laughs> you know, in, in a capitalist system, you can't rely on a job to save you, right? There has to be something deeper. There has to be community. There has to be, you know, a transformation. And that's what we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have a cohort. Uh, now we're into our second cohort of young people aged probably like 16 to 25. Parameters dictate 18 to 24. We're pushing as much as we can against that 
very specific requirement because increasingly younger and younger people are the mm -hmm. ones involved in community violence or the ones who really need to be seen who need to feel community. So folks sit with us in circle at least once a week. Folks receive training. They receive money. They get paid just by showing up. We connect them with other resources and, you know, different opportunities in and around Rochester. And that's kind of been the model so far. You know, it was really powerful. Last week, Circle, there, there was a young man who got out of jail that very day and came to our circle. Um, and the space that welcomed him was really incredible. He was able to, you know, form relationships, see people who he knew in his younger days, uh, who he hadn't seen in, in some time. That was unplanned. It's just a small city like that. Uh, and so we're trying to build relationships in a way that can be lasting, in a way that can make some of these changes. So, so that's the, the specific project Linda's referencing. Uh, that's one space where we do a lot of this work. When necessary, we do push into conflict resolving mode with these young people, right? They got conflict, we try to help them with it. They don't necessarily come to us right away to get their conflict resolved in you know, a restorative justice process. Rather, they come to us to get, to get their conflict resolved by getting needs met and feeling belonging mm -hmm. and starting to make the internal shifts that you know, they might wanna make. In other spaces, we do the active work of restorative and responsive circles. I mean, we get quite a few referrals uh, from the system, from DSS, from Office of Mental Health, from uh, youth probation, from the courts. And we work with these families and provide many restorative interventions to hopefully have some self-determination -determin about what resolution looks like. So we also do a lot of casework on the individual basis there. And we're also in schools quite a bit. And so we push into schools, provide casework, provide training. And those, those are just a few kind of samples of, of what our work includes. We, we can give specifics if that would help for case types and individuals. This is all awesome. I have so many, I have so many thoughts and questions. I think I'm reflecting on some of the stuff that, that you said, Linda, in relationship to the specifics that Clayton provided, like <clears throat> the idea that the circle can hold it. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious to know more about the role that you see yourselves playing or the staff in these spaces or facilitators or whatever their titles are in these spaces, how mm -hmm. your own identity as well as like identity as a person, as well as identity as a facilitator plays into how you orchestrate those kinds of spaces. Yeah, I, I, I know, first of all, we think of ourselves as circle keepers. We're, we're there to kind of, again, hold the space for them. And I think you, you feel Clayton and I because Clayton and I feel each other. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we, we very much do. We, we, I think we both operate, I'll, I'll speak for myself, for him, out of the same principle of our values about what all of this is. We lead with our values about what all of this is. And that comes across. If we believe in acceptance, if we believe in love, you know, whatever we're putting out there in, at that time to allow people to bring, as we say, your true self, show up as you today. We're, we're open to that. And we position ourselves in the circle so that we are obviously a part of the circle. And we, we give it up to them as, as they participate and they feel that. And for me personally, if, if you forget that I'm the circle keeper while I'm in it, I've done my job. Mm -hmm. I've, I've done my job. Say that again. I've, Say that again. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I just want to disappear. 
And, and I just want you to feel like this is that calming um, to your point. And, and we get that at the end. We'll say, say one word as you leave. And we get, I feel at peace. I feel so calm. I feel ready because we, we open it up and we're our true selves. We bring our honest and true selves to that circle. We share some things that in, in most other spaces, I am telling you, people would say, you should not be sharing that. You know, that's, that's a <laughs> little too much. You're too vulnerable, but, but we don't know the limits of vulnerability when it comes to, to doing this work. We, we, we show up as ourselves and it allows them to show up as as their true selves. What do you think, Clay? Couldn't agree more. I, you know, I, I think it's an interesting question for, for me. So I, as a white man, I, I know how loud my identity is, especially to the folks we work with, and yet how oblivious it can be to me and to other folks like me in this space. And so it requires a lot of self-awareness. It requires a lot of active unlearning and reworking. What I'll say my learning edge was as I kind of found my way to this work and found my way into my life into my 20s. You know, I think that relationships are the antidote to a lot of superficial um, identity-based disconnection. So the ability to forge relationships and doing so by listening, by being present, by you know, not leaning into the pressures that so many folks apply in these types of programs, right? The, the deadlines and mm. the paperwork and, you know, the you should, the we have to, all of those things that I really try to resist. Um, one, because I, I also don't like those things. And, and then two, because it, it gets in the way of the actual work oftentimes. And so, you know, I just think about my identity as a circle keeper it is one that I, I just got to you know, be conscious. And typically uh, I'm on the back foot. Typically I'm like, um, I allow for a lot of self-determination and circle. And sometimes that's people talking over the talking piece and that's people kind of expressing themselves however they gotta. And, you know, it's, I'm cool with all that. And you got to just allow a space that's different from other types of space. And, and the only way I can do that is by being me. I appreciate that. I like how you use the word loud when thinking about your identity. I think that I can relate to that as a white person as well. I'm thinking about how on our phone conversation, when I first spoke with you both, Linda, you talked about an instance in Rochester where harm was responded to restoratively and the role that you and Clayton and the rest of the folks that you work with responded to that regarding statues of Frederick. Douglas in the area. That for me was such a powerful story and example of how restorative justice can strengthen communities. I was actually going to ask if we can couple that story with a much different type of story yes. about restorative justice Any, as well. Okay. Whatever fits that, answer my question, however. Give it yeah. the two parts, how it, take it from whatever direction makes sense. Yeah. Okay. 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 Yeah. Linda, go, go for go it. For it. Go for it. All right. So back, uh, I'm thinking it was 2020, might have been 2019 now. On COVID, I've lost track of time. There was a committee here in uh, Rochester, that uh, commemorative committee that had come together to pulled together a year-long celebration, uh, 200 years of Frederick Douglass's ideas, beliefs, 
life and they were going to celebrate that. And there was lots going on, but one of the things that they did was they had this local artist work with other volunteers to create these 13 statues of Frederick Douglass. And they were placed around the city at very key uh, and significant points of his life, you know, like where his newspaper was and where he lived with his family and where the last boat took off from Western New York into Canada with the slaves. They were all over the city. And one night after lots of drinking, two college students decided that they would, you know, dismount one of them and they were dragging the statue down the street. And several people saw them um, call the police. They got stopped and they got arrested. And the whole process kicked in. The whole punitive process kicked in. At that time, there was newspaper articles and a couple of people from the committee were making statements. And the thing that we heard, those of us doing this work, was the thing that we should all listen for when we think about restorative justice. I just want to know why they did it. I just want to know why any victim that says that may be looking for another option. They want to know the why behind it. And so we went into high gear and got everybody together on the committee and told them about this process. And they said, yeah, we'd like to do it. And we brought these two young men in after lots of preparation, because in that space, this does take a lot of pre-work and preparation to make sure, as you all know, you come into that room, this is about accountability. This is not now about shame or blame, but it's also not about minimalizing or justifying what you did. You're going to take accountability. We're going to work from there. Mm -hmm. And they did. And the process worked. Some of the outcomes were that, that, and so the justice in that came from the victims, right? The, the direct justice came from the direct people who were impacted by that. And they asked that they learn about Frederick Douglass, that they visit all the sites around the city, that they write papers about it, and that they be on call to do speaking engagements about what they had learned about this. And they did all of that. At the end of that, a couple a year later, another statue at that spot that I mentioned for the boats to take off to go into Canada, that one was knocked over and destroyed. And before any of us could get on the phone to each other, those two young men called us and said, whatever we can do to be of help. We're, got, we're coming to Rochester and do it. They didn't even live here. They went to school here. One lived downstate. One lived a little bit more upstate. And they said, whatever we can do, we'll come there and we'll help. And um, the day that that statue was going to be replaced, because that one was completely destroyed, they showed up and they lifted that statue from the back of a truck and put it back in its place. And they have continued to reach out to say, you know, um, we want to be a part of whatever happens, not just around Frederick Douglass, but introducing people to this concept of forgiveness. You got another story, Clayton, that goes with that, because oh. that one always makes me cry. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. Sorry, I'm not Clayton. <laughs> <laughs> that one always makes me cry, folks. <laughs> I love it. It's so it's so powerful, Linda, yeah. and I can feel it through that. I think I think when you say 
what I was thinking and what the rest of us were thinking was, why did they do it? That's where we went. And that's what so many other systems don't ever get at. And I think that's what gets lost. Did you, was that important to the victims in this situation? They also wanted to know what, why did they do it? Did you find that through this process? So, so uh, you mentioned early on in the process that it's, it's messy, right? Mm -hmm. So you do this whole buildup. We're going to go into this room and we're going to have this conversation, but you know, you don't know what to expect. And everybody was ready to go into the room until they got into the room. Uh, (laughs) And the victims got really heated and hot, you know, Mm -hmm. and they started making accusations and to their credit and benefit, the young men kept their composure and they kind of, and when the question came up, what was on your mind? What, what were you thinking? Why did, why would you do this? One of them, of course, said, first of all, you know, the, the pain that you're feeling, I'm feeling right now, I'm feeling your pain. And I want you to know, I got to plead ignorance, even though, you know, that that's not a defense. I didn't even know who Frederick Douglass was. I was dragging that statue home because I thought it would look good in my living room. I mean, if somebody 20, 21 years old says that to you, I don't know how old you guys are on this podcast, but I know the mind of a 21 year old. It's like, that's exactly what they were thinking about. That's a great looking statue. Let's take it home and put it in the living room. And these people sat there for a minute and tried to comprehend that. And then they finally came to the point where they said, this thing of intention versus impact, that was not their intention, but the impact on us. So let's unpack that. So we began to unpack that the rest of the circle, you know, not their intention, but here was the impact on all of you. And that's how we got to resolution. Yeah, that that was a really high profile case here in Rochester. You know, there was a lot of noise around it. You know, restorative practices really require self-determination. And I think that was hard to get to, you know, because because of just how many folks are talking about it. Anyway, so to two kind of other, other stories and examples of, you know, restorative interventions. One in a school, one outside of a school. Um, the one in the school was, I remember three young women who just fought so often. They were like frenemies who just had this habit of when the switch flipped and they had a little conflict, they resorted just fighting each other in school, out of school, wherever they were. You know, they grew up together. Uh, their siblings knew each other. Their parents knew each other. And I remember the first time I had them in my office for a restorative circle, a, a fight practically happened there. I, I had to break up a fight and separate them, get you know one away from the other and said, well, what did I do wrong here? Like, I got to rethink this entire process. And instead of jumping to a restorative circle, the next time they were in an argument, you know, we really doubled down on community space and they participated in quite a few community building circles where they were introduced to the process of circle uh, using a talking piece, building their patience to listen to others speak, even though they had something to say. And we did that for the better part of, you know, half a year before I brought them back into the space of circle again after a conflict. Um, in the meantime, I would do a lot of one-on-one work with them, enable them to process and vent that way. And then toward the end of the year, and this was the year before COVID, so this must have been 2019, 
they requested uh, a circle with each other after a pretty heated argument. And I was like, okay, you know, the last time we did something like this, you, you all almost, but you did try to fight in my office and, you know, we can't have that happen again. So if you feel safe, then we can do it. And they said, yes, we're good. We're good. And because they had been in so many circles with me in the community building level, they really knew how it worked and, and they were able to practically lead it themselves. You know, I posed the questions, what happened? How are you feeling at the time? How do you feel now? What do you need to make things right? Whose obligation is it to do that? And they just ran the show. And it was just an example of how, you know, what we strive for is an internal shift about reacting to others, about managing emotion and restorative practices really is social emotional learning. And it's something that should be continued to be used, even if the first example falls through. Uh, so, so that's an example in the school. And I just want to give one more example outside of the school, because I think between Linda's story of like a really high profile case, this story, which was like super informal and, you know, just kind of like happened in the, in the run of a mill of a daily school day. This third one is a family and, and it's a family who was referred to as by something called FACT, the Family Access Connection Team. It's worth the conversation. It's this like bureaucratic monster of probation, Department of Social Services, Office of Mental Health. Um, they all come together and provide service to varying degrees of success. And, you know, one family that we got referred to, they said, well, you know, they, they, there's this young man who just really needs support. You know, he's getting involved into community violence. He, you know, doesn't really have direction. Why, why don't you just give him support? And we said, okay, like, sure, let's figure out what's going on. And so we pushed into the family, we talked with him, we talked to his, his mother, who it turned out happened to be the mother of, of eight kids. This was her, her last kid still in the home, um, significant health issues, um, housing instability. Uh, and then the young man's sister also lived with them, recently released from incarceration. And so she moved back in with her, her mom and her brother. And, you know, the student was experiencing truancy, which is why he was referred to us as well as the violence he was involved in. And yet we identified early on that, no, what, what was happening was just family breakdown because this family, you know, even though they received all of these services, right, they got like every service under their son, they still weren't being given the space to have their type of conversation. And they had a lot of stuff. They had, you know, a family member pass in the family, you know, unexpectedly and tragically within the year. They had, you know, this level of conflict beneath the surface that was being exacerbated by their needs not being met. And what we did was we did a lot of concurrent processes at first where each, you know, member of the family had their own space, their own circle per se, uh, to process and to figure out what they wanted to say to each other. And so we did a lot of pre-work. We did multiple sessions like that. And then we did multiple sessions together, you know, as a family. And the first one was just a lot of noise. They just screamed at each other. And it, you know, from the outside, it wouldn't have looked like it was resolution, but we knew, okay, we, we just got to keep trying and, you know, keep delivering service. And, you know, by the second or third one, you know, they actually started to make that shift to the point where they said, we got it from here. You know, we've, we've gotten out what we need to, we've changed the tune of our conversation. And so it's another example that restorative processes, you know, they don't necessarily fix the issue. They let people have a different type of conversation so they can fix it themselves on their own time. That's what we strive for, self-determination. So. I, want, I want people listening to here to like just rewind and listen to that whole thing over again because that's what, that's, that was incredibly useful. But there were two pieces I want to pull out. One, that circles are, are messy and loud and that they, the process of a circle is not going to be the like 
picture perfect Disneyland like resolution the first time you imagine it. And so the room that you're describing, Clayton, where people are yelling at each other and that how that sets the foundation for them to go and discover what it is they need from each other to solve this or to get to some resolution, whatever that means for them, potentially even outside of the circle space that you've created, but that it's still the work of being of of inspiring like a restorative result. So the messy and loud. And then number two was that a lot of times the community building, this is related to the first story you shared about the school. A lot of times the community building and the uh, connection that you create through circles that have nothing to do with conflict, make it possible for us then to enter into a space where there's bigger feelings involved and actually get something done. But if we don't understand what it could feel like to be in a circle space or a restorative space where we are uh, building the patience to listen to each other speak. That's another Clayton quote. Then we don't know what it's going to feel like when there's like big feelings involved. And then we're not able to actually get to a resolution or something that feels good or feels like it's making us whole again, if we don't have some of that practice in that community space. Yeah, I think I could listen all day to both of you sharing stories like those. And I'm trying to pinpoint what it is that makes them so validating and so motivating. And I am thinking about how Clayton said restorative justice is deeply personal. And I think all of those stories are so just like profoundly human and speak to the ways that we are all searching for forgiveness and understanding and belonging, whether it shows up in us wanting to fight someone or defend ourselves or deny something we did. But I think somehow in every one of those very different instances, accountability happened. And we rarely see that when other responses that aren't restorative occur. And I think to leave our listeners with what do you both see is the path forward? How can people become more involved in the work that you're both doing? I'm thinking about, Linda, your your story or your metaphor of the river. Do we need another river? Do we need more people upstream or downstream? Where do we need to be set up in the river? What what do we need? How do, how do we get people more involved in this? And, and, and Clayton, tell us more about how we revert the river from, from making it... Um... Have you figured out how to make it so that it's not just a buzzword and that it has all the actual impact that you've seen through your experiences? <laughs> yeah, Clayton, have you figured that out yet? <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I, I want to contextualize what restorative work means in Rochester through some, some facts. And then I want to give a little bit of a, a quote from a book that means a lot to me and I recommend you all check out. So, so the, the facts of Rochester include in 2021, 38.4 homicides per 100,000 people, the fifth highest in cities tracked by you know, various annual reports, higher violent crime rates in New York City, Washington, D.C., Chicago, Compton, et cetera. Rochester simultaneously uh, has the highest rate of childhood poverty in the country. Rochester, you know, to dig deeper, also has two of the five most economically segregated school districts in the country. And taken as a whole, the greater Rochester metropolitan region is considered you know, the, the greatest uh, economically racially segregated school district we have. Made evidence in 
one of the worst performing school districts last night was a Rochester school uh, school board meeting about the budget. And once again, a lot of mess, a big, big old mess. And you have that happening right next to some of the, the top performing districts in the country. So none of this is an accident. And all of this is at play when we have these individual moments of conflict. This is the context that folks find themselves in when they make their way to our table. So it's really important that we understand what that means, not only for these individuals, and also for how we create restorative programming. We can't just keep doing restorative interventions without focusing on that level of oppression, on that level of ongoing injustice. And so when we think about what it means to truly do the work, we, we, we gotta dig deep and we gotta do as much as we can in that realm as well as just the realm of individuals. And so that's what brings me to the quote. And the quote comes from a book called Colorizing Restorative Justice. It's uh, a collection of stories and meditations uh, and even activities put together by folks who are in the quote unquote field of RJ, uh, of dialogue and dispute resolution, who are themselves black and indigenous and people of color. Um, and this is the beginning of a chapter called A Call to Settlers in RJ. As long as the restorative justice movement confines its focus to harms done by individuals today, the work will prove superficial in effect. If RJ remains silent about these twin wounds, here referring to uh, the ongoing genocide of Native American folks, as well as white supremacy and, and slavery and its, its legacy today, um, RJ's ability to transform society remains compromised. The mindset that believes in doing harm to gain benefits will continue unchallenged, justified even. Hence, the transformative impact on individuals will be limited imbalanced and unsatisfactory because the far greater harms that do far greater structural damage hang all around us. The restorative effect will stop with just us, violating from the get-go the core RJ principle mm -hmm. of inclusion. And again, that's colorizing restorative justice. And that in itself, I think, was written by Edward Villantra. So, so what I want to say, and what I probably feel like is the closing, um, and, and to what Clayton just shared, is that, and Clayton and I are very close out, outside of the work. He knows that, and, and, and I, I want to be clear that the work for me going forward is always going to be about empowering people who look like me. I am, I am really quite weary with the struggle for systems. And I tell Clayton consistently, that's your job. That's your job because the people who are creating and making and, and have power in those systems, they look like you. And they're going to listen to you. And he's empowered to do that. You know, when he made the statement about how loud his identity is, I love that he knows that because he can go into a room and he can say things and be heard in ways that I know I cannot. And so that's the river concept for me. I want him upstream every day. I want him upstream. I want him in people's faces. I want him saying the things you've heard, him, the very powerful things he said here today. And I want to continue to say to people who look like me, you hold power. I had someone say to me one time, and it really, really angered me that Black people could not be prejudiced and, and be racist because they didn't have any power. And I thought that was one of the most demeaning things a person could have said to me as a black person. I don't have any, I don't have any, I don't have any power over myself. 
I don't have any power over my community. I have no power. And I think that's the message my community gets far too often, that we don't have any power. My counter message is always that you have all the power. So I am about empowering our communities through this process, through this healing process that makes them strong enough to know that they do have they do have power. They do have the self-determination. They can do this. They don't always have to rely on systems to get this done. Although I know and they know that systems are going to have to change. And that's so that's where Clayton and I are two bookends um, and we do this work and the, and the river doesn't have to change the river. I'm reading Tom Porter's book about the river. The river's the river. It's going to flow the way it flows. Uh, we're just going to have to work it from both ends. I can feel the power you both have as individuals, but also as a relationship together. And that's so cool that I can like feel that through the Zoom screen. I hope we get to continue work together in other ways. Thank you so much for this. Thank you for having us again very much. This has been a great conversation.